0: Welcome to the Calvary Couples Podcast. This is Pastor Josh, and we are beginning a new series here. We're going to spend about six weeks or so studying through the book of 1 Corinthians. I think it'll be a timely uh, Bible study here as we begin the new year. Um, You may be listening to this. It'll be the last week of 2021, or it may be the first week of 2022, but um, we're going to try to uh, find what does uh, the book of 1 Corinthians have for Christians living in today's age. And we're going to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be in verses 10 through 31. And as we begin, I want to take some time to give a little bit of background around the book, maybe some timelines, some history, some significant things about the city of Corinth itself, just to give a little bit of uh, more understanding of who Paul's audience was as he's writing his first letter to the church in Corinth, and the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the letter itself probably uh, circles around AD 55, uh, during the time where Nero is the emperor of Rome. And Paul had written to the believers in Corinth about some problems in the church that had been reported to him. And he's probably writing this uh, during his uh, three-year ministry in Ephesus. So Paul is likely located in Ephesus while he's writing this letter to the Corinthian church as he's hearing about some things that are issues um, amongst the believers there. So the apostle Paul founded the church at Corinth likely around AD fifty one, so really not too many d- decades after the death of Christ. And then during his second uh he did this during his second missionary journey. Um the first Corinthians was likely written by Paul four to five years after the founding when he received a report about the Corinthians, and the report that he received was that there was fighting amongst each other. So this epistle was also written in response to questions that the church had sent in regarding issues like marriage, spiritual gifts, and also the resurrection of Christ. So clearly the church of Corinth had a lot of questions, which shouldn't be surprising given that this is a first century church. This is a brand new um, thing that they're embarking on. So Paul was um, using his apostolic authority to um, answer some of these questions under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So uh, the letter began in typical fashion. Paul identifies himself, um, who is uh, delivering the letter, um, and some of the recipients of the letter as well. Another significant thing to take some time to look at will be um, the significance of the city of Corinth. So Corinth was important in the missionary activity of the Apostle Paul, and he visited Corinth at least three times that we have record of. He founded many Christian assemblies there, and he wrote at least four letters to the Christians in Corinth. Now, Corinth was a metropolitan city on the Mediterranean Sea with a population consisting of, historians believe, somewhere between 150,000 and 300,000 Roman citizens and then approximately 460,000 slaves. Now, it was a city that was rich in culture and its citizens were known for worshipping many, many gods. In fact, Corinth had a reputation for vulgar materialism and immorality And part of the reason for that was that they boasted about being the home of the goddess Aphrodite, and she was a Greek false god of love and prostitution. And you'll see the um, allusions to that in the letter in Corinth, if you're familiar with it, uh, before we begin the study. In the first century, when Paul wrote this letter, Corinth was known for its banking industry and its incredible wealth. Corinth is an extremely wealthy city at this time. Very similar to urban centers here in the United States today. The church was established there sometime after Paul's visit to Athens, and that's recorded for us in Acts 18. Some years later, the, the city of Corinth was destroyed because of its revolt against Rome, and all the citizens were either killed or sold into slavery. So hopefully that's helpful information as we uh, dig into this first letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians uh, here in 1 Corinthians. Now we're going to dig into the text itself, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10-11. through 11. So here we begin to read that Paul called the Corinthian believers to unity in what they believed and what they focused on. He had already set the stage and the basis for this by reminding them that the church is made up of different kinds of people in different places, but that we are all called to be saints together, regardless of location, background, or ethnicity. And he begins that early in verse 2. That's not necessarily part of our text today, but verse 2 says, "...unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints." With all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So they're all called to be saints. And he reminded them that our unity is based upon the fellowship that we have in Christ. In verse 9, God is faithful by whom ye were called under the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have one Lord, and that is the focus of our unity. Now the word fellowship actually denotes the idea of partnership, participation, as well as social interaction. Therefore, it is our common commitment to and relationship with Christ that unites us. And we read about that in verses 2, 9. And then also in verse 10, Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no division among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So after Paul's encouragement... To unity, he revealed what apparently was a real-life situation that had prompted the need for this encouragement and instruction. And like many of Paul's letters to the churches, he is addressing specific issues that he is aware of um, to uh, try to give uh, more instruction to the church as a whole. The apostle had received word that there were those in the church who were being contentious or quarrelsome. At its root, the word means debate, that there was debate, strife, wrangling, and portrays the seriousness of the issues at hand. Scholars are unsure of the identity of who this person is, Chloe, that he mentions in verse 11, but it is likely the name of a prominent and possibly wealthy individual in the church at Corinth. She may have even been hosting the church in her home. There are two apparent issues causing the division, one that relates to philosophy and the other regarding loyalty. Corinth was full of philosophical thinkers each wanting to share his or her own wisdom, which is not uncommon in very wealthy centers of uh, population because there's just more opportunity, quite frankly, to sit around and think about sometimes very strange things. So on the surface, such traits may seem appealing. They could also lead to much debate and strife. The result Paul desired, however, was harmony and not the elimination of diversity. And that's really important to hang on to that truth that is just mentioned here, that Paul's desire is to see the church have unity within their diversity, that harmony can be found even though that there are many differences amongst the people. But the goal was not to eliminate or homogenize everybody so that there is not. God made everyone diverse. He did that for a reason. But he expects us to have unity around one singular object of focus, and that's Jesus Christ. So the appeal for Paul for unity was based on being one in Christ. The fact that the Apostle mentioned Christ ten times in the first ten verses leaves no doubt that he saw the Lord as both the source for and the reason for Christian unity. The name and cause of Christ should unite a church more than various philosophies and points of view should ever divide a church. So what's the takeaway for us here today? That is to work at maintaining unity with other believers. It is easy to be divisive. It is much easier to be divisive than it is to work and strive for unity amongst one another. So we ask ourselves the question, why is it difficult to maintain unity, but seemingly easy to be divided? Well, unity takes humility. We have to put away our pride and be humble. It takes self-sacrifice, willing to put the needs of others ahead of our own. There's a give and there's a take. And division just comes naturally because of our sinful nature. That's, that's just part of who our fallen man is, is that division just comes much more easily than to work for humility, self-sacrifice, and unity. So we need to dig a little bit deeper in our own lives and ask ourselves, what attitudes and actions are going to lead to unity? In my family, in my home, within my church, within, with, well, with other believers, what attitudes and actions will lead to unity, and how can I push forward and strive to find unity in Christ? So that's the first part of our lesson. There will be three here in this first part of 1 Corinthians. hope you'll join us as we come back for the second part, Our Allegiance Belongs to Christ Above All Earthly Leaders. Welcome back to our first lesson here on First Corinthians. We are entitling uh, the lesson all on the same page, and we are here in our second part of the first lesson saying, All our allegiance belongs to Christ above all earthly leaders. We're in first Corinthians chapter one, and we'll be in verses twelve through seventeen. Now, verse 12 opens up with the words that have been variously translated, Now this I say, or what I mean is, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. So you see there's some loyalty divisions here amongst this church in Corinth. And what he says here, Paul says, What I mean by contentions or quarrels is this. The words Paul spoke stand as a commentary on what the contentions were people had begun to create allegiances towards various leaders or teachers in the church who had influenced them. And Paul urged his readers to instead give their allegiance to the one who was actually responsible for their salvation and whose name they carried, which is Christ. The issue at hand, again, reflects the Corinthian culture. You see, there were numerous religious objects located throughout Corinth inscribed with, for instance, I belong to Aphrodite, or I belong to the goddess Demeter. This mindset carries over into the church and expressed itself in misguided loyalty to various Christian leaders. And the ones that are outlined here, Paul mentions himself, Apollos, who was a great preacher in the first century church, the apostle Peter, and others as well. So because Paul founded the church and many many of the Corinthian believers were converted under his ministry, there was an allegiance to him. Apollos follows Paul and had a very effective ministry, resulting in many being loyal to him. But the commitment and loyalty due only to Christ was being given to some of these other leaders. So, Paul needs to combat this way of thinking. So, Paul asks some very rhetorical questions in verse 13. And he says it this way. He asks the church, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Of course, we know the answer to that is no. He says, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course, that's not true as well. So, then we continue and the answer is no. Baptism was an important matter in the New Testament church. And considering that many of those being baptized would have been cut off from their old life and often rejected by their families, it stood to reason then that the individual who performed the baptism held a special place in their heart. And scholars believe that as Jesus often had his disciples perform the act of baptism, that Paul likely did the same, leading him to say what he says in verse 14 through 16. I want to read it because I think it's very significant. Paul says in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you. What an interesting thing to say. What does he mean by that? Why would he be grateful that he didn't baptize any of these people he's writing to? But he says, but Crispus and Gaius, meaning they're the ones who baptized you, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name, meaning I was baptized in the name of Paul. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus, besides I know not whether I baptized any other. So it's kind of strange language the way that he's phrasing this, and sometimes we can get confused by it, but essentially what Paul is saying is, I did baptize the household of Stephanus, But I have not baptized any of you that I'm writing to in this letter of Corinth. And I'm grateful for that because, based on baptism, you guys are finding division amongst each other, (laughs) which really is only something a church can can achieve, is to um, find a way to be divided, and that way to be divided is who baptized us, right? So Paul was, again, just giving an illustration that, that who baptized you is insignificant because Christ is the one whose name we are baptized, and Christ is not divided. Therefore, the church should not be divided. So what's the takeaway for us? That we need to love and respect godly Christian leaders, but worship and obey Christ alone as our Lord and Savior. And we'll always gravitate towards personalities and gifted teachers and people that are special influences in our lives, and those are good things. But we shouldn't let those silly things like that divide us as a church from our common goal, and that's to be united in Christ. So how does a focus on Christ lead to unity in the church? I think it puts all of us on the same page going in the same direction and working for the same goals. And then secondly, why must our allegiance to Christ make, uh, take precedence over our allegiance to Christian leaders? Well, the reality is that Christ is the final authority and unites us. Allegiance to Christian leaders can divide us. So let's all focus on the singular object of our faith, who is a person of Jesus Christ. So hope you join us for the third part of this lesson, God's plan of salvation seems foolish to the lost world, but brings salvation to those who believe. Welcome back to the Calvary Couples Podcast. We're wrapping up the last part of our first lesson here in 1 Corinthians, entitled All on the Same Page. This third part is going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 18 through 31. And Paul is making the case that the plan of salvation to the world seems like a foolish thing, but to those who will believe, it will bring salvation. So Paul quickly took a focus away from the personalities and styles of leaders, including himself and directs his readers' attention to what our mission should be. And the thing that unites us as far as our mission is concerned is spreading the gospel. He would do this, however, not by using persuasive eloquence, as often happened in Corinth. You have to remember that the Greeks were very powerful speakers. Um, their, Their rhetoric was second to none. So Paul says that it's not going to be eloquence necessarily that's going to be the persuasiveness of the gospel, but instead it is going to be the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's no doubt the allegiance of some of these leaders we receiving centered around their wisdom and eloquence of speech. But the message of the cross could stand on its own. However, and it was this message, not Paul's gift of speaking, that had the power to transform the lives of mankind. Paul reminded us that God intentionally designed the message of the gospel and the plan of salvation around very simple ideals. And as a result, it would not require eloquence to convey the message of the gospel nor special intelligence to understand it. God's plan of salvation, the work of Christ, and the preaching of the gospel would leave those who depend on earthly wisdom baffled. But those same components would serve as the rallying cry and the unifying element for believers. Paul had encouraged his readers to unite around the common mission in verse 10, which is, as I summarize, we don't have the time or energy to quarrel over lesser issues. He would say, the world needs to hear the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. This message produced one of two responses. First, there were those, especially in Corinth, who would see it as folly or foolishness. And there are many in the world today who hear the gospel message and just say, that's ridiculous, and they'll ridicule it. Because the Romans used the cross as a form of execution for the worst of criminals, the intellectuals of the day would naturally say that they could never accept a savior or leader who died on a Roman cross. In fact, the Greeks believed that the gods operated in a sphere beyond the people, and thus could never permit themselves to be treated in a manner such as Jesus suffered. On the other hand, for those who had experienced salvation, the cross was the powerful means by which it was accomplished. This was difficult for the wise of Paul's day to accept. After all, the message of the cross eliminates humanity's effort to accomplish salvation on our own. And in verse 19, Paul quotes Isaiah 29, uh, verse 14, and I'll read it. He says, for it is written, whenever you see that phrase, for it is written, Paul is um, rehearsing something else, likely from the Old Testament. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. You see here, Paul reminded the reader that God would overthrow and bring to nothing the reputed wisdom of the day. And this Old Testament passage was referring to a time in which, because of human wisdom, Israel formed an alliance with Egypt as a defense against Assyria. Instead of this wisdom bringing deliverance to them, it was God alone who could save them. So likewise, so using that as an illustration showing the uh, nation of Israel's misguided attempt to um, basically uh, salvage their country by allying with Egypt, God says that was misplaced wisdom. So Paul uses that as an illustration to show that the brilliance of the plans of God cannot be understood or appreciated by human wisdom. And the rhetorical question of verse 20 illustrates this truth. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The wise referred to the Greek philosophers, typically known for their analytical skills and thinking. A scribe was an expert in the law and a debater and was a skilled public speaker. While these individuals epitomized worldly education, through God's plan of the cross, even their wisdom was deemed foolishness. Since this supposed wisdom could not produce a relationship with God, the Lord used his own means, the sharing of the gospel, to save those that put their trust in him. Verse 21, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, and it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And since this supposed wisdom could not produce relationship with God, the Lord used his own means, the sharing of the gospel, to save those that put their trust in him. While the Jews were seeking signs or miraculous deeds, and the Greeks were seeking wisdom or the love of ideas, it was the message of Christ's crucifixion that Paul was declaring. And what is the message of Christ's crucifixion? Verse 22, for the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness. This message, however, would likely be offensive to the Jews especially considering the fact that the Old Testament spoke of a person hanged on a tree or a cross as being accursed, Deuteronomy 21 and verse 23. Regardless, the death and resurrection of Jesus reveals God's power to save people from sin and death and demonstrated the supremacy of God's wisdom as compared to man's. And here's how Paul puts that in verse 24 and 25. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So what's the takeaway for us in this lesson? That we need to unite around the mission of getting the gospel to people. If we can't find common ground with anybody, as far as believers go, we can find common ground in knowing that it is our responsibility together to get the gospel to the world around us. Why do you think Jesus' death on the cross makes no sense to many in the lost world? Well, we gave some illustrations as far as the Jews and the Greeks, some needing their own wisdom, some needing a particular sign. The world hasn't changed. They're still looking for the same thing this day. And secondly, knowing we don't have to be eloquent and persuasive takes the pressure off of sharing the gospel. What simple truths need to be included when sharing the gospel? Well, when you go out and decide and determine that you're going to be a disciple of Christ and and give the gospel and evangelize others, here's some takeaways that you'll need to know. The first is that God loves us and wants us to know Him. Secondly, that we have sinned and that and those sins separate us from God. Thirdly, God sent His Son Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins, and finally, we must personally trust in what Christ did for us and call on Him to save us. That is the gospel in a nutshell, and that is what God has equipped us with to go into all the world and preach it. So I hope this week you'll determine to do that, to reach out to those who don't know Christ and be a picture and a witness and a light for the gospel. And I know that we can all unite around that.